Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we start today with one word. Actually, today's whole time that we have together now centers on one word, three letters, properly and appropriately applied, those three letters forming this one word, open for us a whole new world. The word is why. For instance, as we come to this and we ask the question why, we recognize that it moves us beyond the realm of the known into the unknown. For example, those of you who are deer hunters represent. You hear? You're a deer hunter? For those of you who are deer hunters, you should ask your question, why is my wife so supportive of me going to the deer lease? Because the chances are she doesn't really like venison that much after all. It may be she answers the question why because she likes to get you out of the house or something like that. When we ask why in the appropriate way, it moves us beyond the realm of the known into the realm of discovery. A number of years ago now, when we lived in deep south Texas, uh, I was out and uh, out and about, and it was that time of the year when birds were migrating south. And so I looked up, and a flock of birds were flying overhead, and they were in one of those V formations. And I guess for the first time I'd ever really thought about it, I asked the question, why do they fly like that? And that question moved me to research it enough that I began to recognize enough in it that it opened the door for me to preach an entire sermon about how we do church or how the church should properly function based on the evidence of geese flying in formation. If you don't know why they fly that way, you should go research it a little bit. We come to a passage of scripture today that is very familiar. As a matter of fact, it's so familiar that it's one of those passages that preachers really kind of shudder a little bit when we go into it because everybody knows the story, everybody's heard all the sermons, and so you come into it and it's sometimes difficult for us to come in a fresh way. And so as I was processing through this passage this week and working towards this message, uh, I, I couldn't escape the why question. In this passage, we're looking at Jesus. At, well, Jesus actually has already ascended. That's chapter one. He's gone back to heaven. The disciples have been left there. He told them to wait for him. Uh, and in Acts chapter two, we have that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the believers. Uh, Simon Peter preaches a great sermon, and uh, three thousand souls were added to the church that day. Uh, it's one of those passages that's a high water mark for us as Christian people. But I continued to roll it over, the story, in my head, and and I couldn't escape the question, why? Why did Jesus choose to have a time frame between the time that he ascended back to heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit? Why during that time frame were they, the disciples, that is, forced to wait? And that being there, why did Jesus, or did God in this case, choose to pick this particular event? Why did he do it in this way? If we ask a question why at the right time and try to get the right answer, it opens some some doors for understanding that might well impact the daily 
Christian life that we're trying to live. So as we come to this passage, um, I'm going to read it in just a moment, but I want to go ahead and give you the answer. Okay, It's not really like a single answer for me uh, unless you take that answer as an umbrella and several things fall underneath it. Here's why I believe God did it this way. Because he wants us to get it. And even though he wants us to get it and he does it in a way that amplifies the opportunity for us to get it, there are still people who won't get it. Well, let's read and I'll show you what I'm talking about. The book of Acts, chapter 2, will be the first 15 verses or so here. And here's what we find. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, we don't get it. Well, actually, that's not what it says, but that's exactly what it means. Others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So as we come to this, a rather simple outline for you this morning, uh, I want us to just get the, this. I, God wants us to get it. The question of why, why did he do it this way? Why did he follow this time frame? All of those things push us to a simple answer, and that is God wants us to get it. Now that opens the door to say, okay, get what? And we might even say get who in this case. So let me give you a little background on why I come to this. The, I, I, I totally believe that the, the way God did this was designed to amplify the moment so that more people would get it. The background of this feast is important that we get it. We call it Pentecost. It's called Pentecost here. But it, actually the background, if we were to go back in the Old Testament, matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to go with me to Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus is in that really clean part of your Bible. You don't ever read it probably. You don't really hear many sermons from it. So there's no thumb grease on it or anything in your Bible. But in the book of Leviticus 23, we have the laying out of some of the background or actually not background as much as it is the command for Israel to uh, partake in this. So Leviticus 23, the giving of the law. And we could go back to another passage and tie it in with this to recognize that this feast that the Jews called the Feast of Weeks 
was one of the three high festivals where all Jewish males were required to go to the central place of worship for them. Uh, By the time we get to the New Testament, that's in Jerusalem. And God says to them, you come to this feast and it is one of those high moments in our religious life as a community where we will come and carve out time for God. Leviticus chapter 23 verses 15 and 16 We read this, God says, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. In other words, that's tied back to Passover. Verse 16, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. And I'm going to stop reading there. We could continue to go through that, and it's just the regulations of what they were supposed to do tied to that. What I want you to get is the moment that this happens, in other words, the, the occasion that God chooses to introduce the Holy Spirit in a brand new, fresh way into the life of his community of faith is chosen based on this feast, the Feast of Weeks. After the Passover, They count forward 50 days, seven weeks roughly, and this is a harvest offering. It's the first fruits kind of a thing. And so these people flood into Jerusalem and there they gather together as a community and they're called on to remember God's work with them, providing food for for his community of faith. It's a pilgrimage Now that's important as we start pulling all of this stuff together because the question why, why did God choose the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks to show this outpouring of his Holy Spirit? It is one of those times when the Jewish community would have been gathered together. In other words, it's a very strategic time if the goal is to get a message out. But there's more to it than just that. Because as we find in some of the writers of the first century Jewish life, Philo, for instance, says that uh, by the time the first century rolls around, that Jewish feast of weeks from the Old Testament has now begun to take on some traditional meaning. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on the children of Israel because we have our own traditions. And typically, we try to take our positions and our, our traditions and elevate them to where we practically treat them as if they are scripture. Now, I know Baptists love to point fingers at other groups and say you shouldn't do that, but let me just give you a point of reference. What time should a church do Sunday school on Sunday morning? And the biblical answer is 9.45. Okay, if you're you're fact-checking me out there in real time, that's not in the Bible. But I rather suspect that if you went to 10 different Baptist churches, you would find that nine or 10 of them do Sunday school at 945 on Sunday morning because it's biblical. Or at least we hold it to that level. I could get a lot more specific than that, but I don't really want to make you mad too early. So let me just leave it at that. So the Jews now have taken this feast with the parameters that God put on it, and they begin now to attach stuff to it. It's not that it's all bad. As a matter of fact, I think all of that stuff contributes to why, to the answer why God chose this particular day and this particular method of introducing the Holy Spirit in this fresh way into the life of this church. By the first century, they had begun to move beyond just the 
Feast of Weeks and the Harvest Offering to help make it a point of remembrance for them. As the Jewish people settled into their role in salvation history and God adopting them as his people and systematically through the centuries using them to make himself known to the world at large, they began to celebrate that in ways that, uh, that maybe weren't stipulated in the Old Testament, in the law specifically. And so for the Feast of Weeks, because of the 50-day from Passover and because of that seven-week time frame, they began to attach significance to this particular feast as a way of remembering God's calling them out of slavery in Egypt all the way to Mount Sinai where Moses met with God on the mountaintop. You remember those stories? And God gave the law, and in the law he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here are the rules of the covenant, if you will. The time frame happened to work really well for first century Jews. The time from the Passover to the Feast of Weeks was roughly the same as the time they believed it took them to get from Egypt as slaves to Mount Sinai where God instigated all of that national stuff. And so it became a point of remembrance for them. Certainly, in an agrarian, agriculturally-based society, the grain offering was important. That point of reference, it says we only survive because God sends the harvest. But they also doubled down on their identity. We are the people of God. God has shown favor on us, and this 50-day time frame just kind of underscores that for us. And so with that background, one other element that I think helps us understand a little bit about why God did this at this particular time is they begin to attach some of those romantic ideas of religion onto it. If you were to go back and you look at that instance in Exodus where Moses is on the mountain meeting with God and God shows up there and you'll find in that account that it talks about the, the, cloud, the, the uh, top of the mountain was enveloped in cloud and there was fire and you know, lightning and thunder and that kind of thing. And, and the children of Israel, by the time we get to the first century, had begun to attach things to like meaning to those pictures from the Old Testament. And those pictures are represented in the way God shows up in the book of Acts chapter 2. So the lightning and the thunder of Exodus, those physical representations of the presence of God on the top of that mountain as he gives Moses the words that will guide their covenant and relationship, began to take on the significance of angels taking that word from the top of the mountain down to the people on the plain below. It's not that difficult for us to see that there's a correlation in the uh, the the visible and the auditory parts of what happens in Acts 2 with the way they had attached meaning to that high point of their place as a country, as, as a people in Exodus. I'll just roll all of that together into this summary statement. I believe that the answer to why, as it attaches to, Exodus, to Acts chapter 2, 
is because God knew that it was a strategic place, point in time, and methodology to help people get it. We we should not be surprised by that. Because what we find in Acts chapter 2 is this incredible move forward in salvation history. From the Old Testament forward, God had chosen a people and he had worked through them throughout history. The the presence of the Holy Spirit is all through the Old Testament. I'm not going to take the time today to go and just kind of walk us through it, but you don't have to get more than a handful of verses into Genesis 1 before you recognize that the presence of God through the Holy Spirit is at work all the way through the Old Testament. But it's different when we get to Acts chapter 2. The way that God, through his Spirit, begins to involve himself with people is different in the New Testament than we find in the Old. This is one of those high water marks. It is a major turning point in the way God deals with people. Jesus and his salvific work has been done. But it's time for the Holy Spirit to move to center stage. Now now our language gets a little bit crazy here. Because we talk and we believe, I certainly believe, I can't say what we believe because I don't know what you believe. So let me just tell you what I believe. I believe that biblically we have the picture of God in three persons. We use the term Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, but three persons. Language is tough for us on this. But you know, in our churches, in our own lives... Uh, it's very possible that we may be guilty of what one guy wisely said was, of all three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the forgotten one. Well, one of the reasons for that is because as Baptists especially, we get a little bit defensive, a little bit bristling when people start talking about the Holy Spirit. Because in our background, Baptists have been afraid that if you get too serious about the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to start doing cartwheels down the aisles and jumping over chairs and talking in languages you don't understand. And so if we're not careful, we push the Holy Spirit off to the side. But I want you to get it today. God goes to great lengths to allow us to see that at this moment in Acts chapter 2, things change in the way he deals with us. The picture in the Old Testament often is that the Holy Spirit comes and he comes down and deals with an individual and empowers an individual, whether it's Joshua or Samson or some of the prophets But the picture then is that the spirit retracts back. And so it's this in and out kind of involvement. But what we find here in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit comes and he begins now to invade, if you will, the lives of people. And he doesn't come to leave. He comes to stay. And it's different. So let me make a few applications here and we'll be done. I've tried to answer the question looking backwards to the Old Testament. The answer to the question of why did God do it this way is because they were ready to get it in this package. If it's so important for us to get it about the Holy Spirit, 
Don't you think we should really pay attention to the way God does this? Move beyond the familiarity that you might have with the passage itself and get down into the question, why did God do this and what difference does it make in my life? See, part of, part of my concern for us, and we're going to spend a lot of time over the next four or five weeks, six weeks, well, just till thanks, I mean, till uh, New Year's, kind of burying down into Acts chapter 2 and some related scriptures that go with it. Because I think that in our Christian culture of 21st century Americana church, we don't get it when it comes to the Holy Spirit. It's not that we don't get him, because that's the promise that we get from Jesus, from God himself, who says when we bring Jesus, we put our trust in Christ and he gives us life, then the Holy Spirit comes. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. So I'm not talking about how we get him although that's going to be throughout these discussions. I'm talking about how I don't think many of us in church in America in the 21st century get it as it relates to the role of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. You see, it's easier for us to accept a cultural picture of what a Christian is supposed to be than it is for us to walk the daily life with the the, the Holy Spirit, God himself speaking into every part of every day. It's just, well, it seems easier. It's probably the better way to say that because anytime we try to write God out of our daily walk, it just makes that daily walk that much harder. But we don't have to think as much if we just adopt a cultural model and then live as if God only talks on Sundays, if the preacher is good that week. It's important. I would say it's crucial that we get it when it comes to the role of the Holy Spirit. And so let me give you three quick applications of this. One of the things that we find, I'm going to go back to what Jesus has told us. So Spencer, here's a heads up. We're going to be in John chapter 14 and then John chapter 16 in a little bit. But one of the things that makes it critical that we get it when it comes to the truth of the Holy Spirit in our daily living, is that Jesus promised that he would bring comfort to us. We don't have to look very far in our world today to find the need for comfort. Let me go back to the question of why. Here's one of those questions, the, 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 the question at one of those situations where it opens up a whole new point of discussion for us. Why would anybody run for president of the United States? If you're not asking that question of the candidates that we currently have, you need to. I hear all kinds of arguments and discussions. Well, hear them. I see them on Facebook because everybody knows that's the best way to argue something. I'm, a, I'm told that we have at least four people running for president. I've picked one of you that I'm going to write your name in so you'll get a vote. But um, why would anybody want to do that? Let me take it a step further than that. Given what we see, in the presidential race of 2016. 
Do you find yourself needing some comfort? But you know, one of the things that I find is people, Christian people, get all wrapped up in all of that political garbage and get distraught in the process. And distress brings lots of other different emotions. Anger, depression. Wouldn't it be great if God had thought ahead enough to provide us with some kind of a resource when we get distressed? Well, wait a minute. Maybe he did. John chapter 14. We have these words from Jesus as we read. Actually, I could read a lot of different ones, but let me just look at verse, verse 16, maybe verse 15 and 16 to help kind of set the tone. And I'm going to really encourage you to go in your own study time this week. Uh, John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, you ought to spend some time just letting the words of Jesus wash over you there. Jesus in this section of scripture now is dealing with his disciples as they are about to be left behind. And he's going to ascend back to heaven. We find that in Acts chapter 1. But before he goes and before he goes to the cross and all of that, Jesus has these discussions with his disciples. John 14 verses 15 and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father. By the way, as I read this first, I want you to let, let the words that point to Trinity, God in three persons, just kind of jump off the page for you. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Your translation may say comforter there. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Let me keep reading. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It is important that we get it when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' promise to those disciples was, I'm going to be gone, but I'm going to send another. The word means another one, just like me. Another comforter, one who is called alongside you, literally. The picture is of two people as they walk together and one strength fails and the other one picks him up, props him up, and helps him move forward. And the promise of Jesus at that point was, you will not be left alone. I will send another one who is just like me and he will comfort you. But it goes beyond that. He says, and he will be in you. Yesterday, Teresa and I found ourselves on the far side of Houston. Actually, we were even past that outside of Katy going west. And as we were out there, we went to this particular establishment because we were shopping. It's a great day. You get to go shopping in Houston. And so our transactions were just about finished. All that was left was the paying out part of it. And so this lady who had been helping us, I don't know where Teresa went. When it came time to pay, she just suddenly was gone. Left me to pay. So I'm dealing with this lady that Teresa has been dealing with to make sure we got what we wanted. And the lady begins the conversation there at the cash register by saying, 
I'm using a pink pen. Okay, now I've been shopping all day. Okay, I'm thinking, in all the Christian love I could muster, so? I'm using a pink pen. I said, okay. And she said, and, and my, uh, my coworkers are giving me a hard time about using a pink pen. Okay, now at this point, you just need to know me, okay? I'm a big time shopper. Love shopping. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself at this point, one of the things I heard my dad say years before, I'm thinking to myself, look, I didn't come in here for a relationship. I just want to do a transaction and I'm going to go home, okay? So I don't need to know you. I don't, you know, we just don't need to be friends, okay? Sorry, that's not the pastor you're looking for. That's just how it was. And she says, uh, my coworkers are giving me a hard time for using a pink pen. And I'm thinking, yeah, and? And then she says, but you know why I'm using a pink pen? No. <laughs> she says, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Okay, so now I start feeling a little bit guilty. And I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's good. And, and then, I don't know what, it came out of my mouth, right? So now I'm going to talk like we're having a relationship. And I said, you know, uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month is important to our family because my wife's mom and my mom both had breast cancer. And so this is an important thing. I, I appreciate the symbolism of what you're doing, writing with a pink pen and talking to people about it. And then she proceeded to talk to me about her own cancer experience. Hers was not breast cancer. It was a different kind of cancer. And she is in remission at this point. But in that discussion, I, I sensed the opportunity to, um, to help bring a little bit of comfort in her situation. And I told her, I said, you know, I'm a pastor and I have stood at bedsides of countless people who were victims of cancer. You don't have to look very far in this world to find people who need comfort. Well, let me, let me just be real selfish here. You don't have to live very long in this world before you need comfort. And maybe it's a health diagnosis, or maybe it's a relationship that's on the rocks, or maybe it's depression, or maybe it's a financial problem, maybe it's a work problem. The reality is that not a single one of us in this room here today escape without the need for comfort. And God so gets that about us that he went to great lengths to be present with us. Pentecost is a big deal. Not because we see a cool story, but because we find this shift in the way God deals with his people. Why the big deal? Because he wants us to get it. Because our comfort level suffers without him. We also find in John 14 this need to be able to make sense of what's going on around us. 
Man, I, I get that as, um, you know, this is the heart of the political season for us as a country. I'm fed up beyond here with all of that garbage. And, and I frankly have great concerns for our nation moving forward. What's a Christian to do in that? There are those voices who would say, well, you just shrink back. You just make friends with church people and be done with the rest of them. That sounds good. Well, it really doesn't even sound good to me, but the reality is that's so far removed from what God has said to us is our charge as people. How do we make sense? How do we do life in a world like this? John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We jump forward to John chapter 16. Uh, Really, we could go from verse 4 all the way through 28. I just want to pick up verses 12 through 15. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And with that statement, we have this incredible truth. That the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ teaches us God's way. That's, I, I can't tell you how important that is for us. A handful of weeks ago, I was dealing with some things in my own life that that just needed some, um, some coming to a solution that was divine. And so as I was processing through it, I, I, I knew what seemed right. Matter of fact, the more I lived in that moment, the more I wanted it to be right. But somewhere in the process, because I couldn't find real peace, even though I thought that was the solution, even though I wanted it to be the solution, I couldn't find peace in that. And so finally, uh, I I went to the Lord in a different kind of a way, and I said, okay, Lord, i got to know what gives here. I, I, I don't want to do something just because it seems right to me. Show me what to do. You ever have a moment like that with God? Do you have regular moments like that with God? Because that is the design, you know. And it was in that moment, in that honest prayer, that God broke through all of the smoke and the fog of the situation and said, and I'll quote Isaiah here, the teacher whispers over our shoulders, this is the way, walk here. We got a lot of really smart people in this church. A few of us, not so much, but no, I'm just kidding about that. 
We have a lot of really smart people here. But you know what? Not a single one of us are smart enough to get life right without the Holy Spirit saying, this is the way, walk here. You know why that's true? Because we have other passages of Scripture that says, your ways are not my ways. And there is a world out there that short of the Holy Spirit giving us discernment, we don't even know it's out there, much less how to live in it. This is a big deal, this Pentecost thing. And I believe that the reason God waited those weeks from the time Jesus ascended to the time of this outpouring that we find in Acts chapter 2, that God was waiting for the precise strategic moment so people would get it. The question is, do you get it? Do we get it? Or do we live our lives as if God is just kind of there in case we need him? I'll just go to Acts 1.8 to summarize all of this. Jesus said to those gathered disciples before he ascended, And the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will receive power. And you'll be my witnesses. One of the reasons, I'm convinced, one of the reasons that we as Christian people are not effective in this world is because we've denied the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because unless Jesus was lying, and he never does that, The promise is when the Holy Spirit comes to you, there's power. So do you get it? Let's pray. This is too important for us to treat as if it's trivial. We'll pray in just a moment, but with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want you to consider this. There was a story that was told a long time ago told as true, so I'll treat it as if it was, of a student in a college-level philosophy class who had done all the time and put in the work and showed up for the final exam, one of those blue book exams, you know, blank pages. And the professor got up and he introduced it by saying, the one question for your final exam is written on the board. And he turned around and he wrote one word, Three letters, why? Those students worked awfully hard to put everything that they had learned in that class into that blue book. And the guy who aced the test was the one who simply responded, because. But you see, that's trivial. And a lot of the times we come to this question in our daily Christian living and we treat God as if he's trivial to us. But he has to be central. And if the Holy Spirit is who he is, which is God, that's a true statement. And if he indwells us as he does, that's a true statement. Then how could we treat as trivial God in in his presence in our daily living? So let's don't be trivial here. 
Does God have you or do you have him? Father, take this time and change lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.